Support for WPR comes from UW-Stevens Point, offering an online Master of Music Education degree with graduate certificates in conducting, Suzuki, and more. uwsp.edu slash mme. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. This week, we saw first for an American president an appearance in solidarity on a union picket line. President Joe Biden on Tuesday joined striking United Auto Workers outside a General Motors plant in Belleville, Michigan. By contrast, former President Trump spoke to non-union auto workers at a facility in Clinton Township, Michigan, an event that had initially been drawn up as counter-programming to that evening's second Republican primary debate. What do we make of these appearances and their messages, and how does this all compare with what we've seen from presidents over the decades when it comes to labor disputes? You can join in at 800-642-1234. What did you think of uh, President Biden's appearance on this picket line? Does it affect your opinion of Joe Biden as the sitting president, as a candidate? And how about former President Trump, current candidate Trump's rally in Michigan? What did you think of his appearance and his message there? Do you want to hear presidential candidates talk about labor and organized labor in particular? And what do you want to hear from them? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. Harold Meyerson is editor-at-large for the American Prospect. He's previously an opinion columnist at the Washington Post and executive editor of the LA Weekly. And a lot of national outlets have published his articles on politics, labor, the economy, foreign policy, and American culture. Harold, thanks a lot for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Before we visit with our current and previous president now, can you put this in a little perspective? Uh, Once upon a time, you write in a recent piece, American presidents sent troops to break up strikes. How have we seen that evolve over the years? Well, that was common practice in the 19th century and even at the turn to the 20th century. uh, Once Franklin Roosevelt became president, uh, that pretty much stopped happening except maybe during World War II uh, when there were some strikes at defense plants, but that was a rather exceptional period. Uh, Obviously, with the New Deal, uh, public policy turned sort of somewhat in favor of workers in unions, and that became for many years the base of the Democratic Party though uh, over recent years, that base has been uh, shifting somewhat, only somewhat, uh, to a more purplish rather than bluish stance. What Joe Biden did earlier this week was without precedent. No president had ever walked on a picket line before with with unions who were on strike. Uh, And this, I think, was emblematic of, of, of two things of Joe Biden's genuine commitment uh, to increase the lot of American workers and his generally pro-union sentiment, which has largely been part of his career, Um, and also the fact that a good chunk of the working class vote is up for grabs, uh, partly because Donald Trump uh, took some uh, positions the first time he ran for president, like he wasn't going to cut Social Security or Medicare, Trump was beginning to realize, and some Republicans were beginning to realize, that they had won a segment of the working class, largely the white working class, but not entirely, because of what they were saying on cultural issues and on uh, the declining cloud of of white America and what have you. Uh, But that since that was becoming the base of the party, gosh, maybe we need to say something 
about these same people's economic issues. And so to a certain degree, uh, the Republican Party has, at least at the rhetorical level, made a bit of a shift uh, towards saying, yeah, workers need a raise. They're not raising the minimum wage or anything like that. Um, and this has become contested terrain, which is why both the current president and the immediately former president were in Michigan this week. In the run-up to those visits, uh, some of the news coverage even was along the lines of, okay, uh, both Biden and Trump are going to southeastern Michigan to reach out to striking UAW workers. Now, the venues they chose were very different. The messages uh, they delivered were pretty different, especially when it came to unions. Can you compare and contrast a little what you saw? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Joe Biden walked uh, uh, alongside a UAW picket line, spoke alongside the relatively new president of the UAW, Sean Fain, and basically endorsed the union's wage demands. Donald Trump went to a non-union auto uh, auto parts factory. Uh, he was invited by management, and the press accounts of that meeting suggest that there may only have been a handful of UAW members at that meeting, uh, that there were, you know, obviously blue-collar workers of various descriptions, some union, some not, uh, at that meeting. And they all pretty much seem to have come from what is, you know, the Trump base. Uh, and Trump basically didn't really have much of a union-related message, uh, and he's previously castigated uh, the UAW leadership and said he'd be okay with them if they endorsed him which is highly unlikely. They've already said they won't. Uh, and his main pitch is that the shift to electric vehicles is going to wipe out the domestic automaking industry altogether, uh, you know, which Biden counters by the fact that the, the, the programs that he put through have funded a whole bunch of domestically located factories to make uh, electric vehicles. And the issue there is how many of those jobs will be union jobs. But I mean, to claim that, uh, you know, uh, as Trump does, that Biden is uh, working to eliminate the U.S. auto industry is uh, gainsaid, is, is made perfectly uh, clear that this is not the case due to all of the funding that Biden-backed legislation is giving to creating those factories here in the United States. I want to listen to a little bit of uh, former President Trump uh, talking about the uh, electric cars. Here's a listen. Biden's drool a ridiculous electrical. Look at this. He wants electric vehicle mandates that will spell the death of the U.S. auto industry. You know, it doesn't matter. I watch it. You're negotiating a contract. You're all on picket lines and everything. But it doesn't make a damn bit of difference what you get because in two years you're all going to be out of business. You're not getting anything. A lot of the uh, the economic effort, it seems like, as you're getting at there uh, from the Biden administration is saying, uh, can we bring those jobs producing electric vehicles from China to the United States? Is that uh, is that the focus you're seeing? Yes. And then there is a, a, an attempt by the Biden administration, which has not been perfect, and some of the legislation was weakened when it went through Congress, but to ensure that those factories that are, you know, now being funded in part by the federal government uh, in tax credits and such, uh, employ union workers at union wages. Now, the fact is, a lot of those factories are going into the non-union, anti-union South. 
uh, Biden's appointees to the National Labor Relations Board are endeavoring to change some of the rules of union elections, which would make it somewhat easier for the UAW to organize those plants, which they have not yet been able to do. Uh, but there's no question that those plants are going to be here in the United States. And the remaining question is how many of them will actually employ union workers at decent wages? Talk to Harold Meyerson with the American Prospect, talking about visits by the current president and the previous president, most likely 24, 2024 election competitors to Southeast Michigan, talking about labor. Here's a listen now to President Biden uh, talking about labor in the middle class. Folks, you've heard me say it many times. Wall Street didn't build the country. The middle class built the country. And unions built the middle class. That's a fact. So let's keep going. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. Thank you very much. Now, reaching out to unions there, Harold, uh, union is not synonymous with manufacturing worker these days. The percentage of unionized workers in the United States has gone down a lot over the years. Is reaching out to unions the same politically as reaching out to working class Americans these days? Uh, the rate of unionization in the private sector today is a flat 6%, which is pretty dismal. I mean, when Joe Biden was a, you know, was a kid, it was at about uh, 35%. So that's a, a major weakening over, over the decades. But by the same token, uh, if you look at the polls that uh, the Gallup organization and the Pew organization do every year or every other year, in the case of Pew, uh, union favorability is as higher than it's been at any time since the 1960s. I mean, the American public is aware of the growing economic stagnation of a lot of American workers, of, of themselves in many cases. And the rate, the approval rating for unions, particularly among the young, uh, is, uh, you know, among the young, it's in the 80 percentiles. Uh, in the general public, it's about 70 percent. Uh, so, you know, those messages resonate beyond just union members, and they resonate, I think, to a broader public, and, and, and the political people around Joe Biden realize that, which is one reason why he was at that picket line. When it comes to the ability of organized labor to unionize, say, a new, uh, a different auto plant or Amazon warehouse or the list goes on, does it matter who is in the White House and which party is in the White House? Completely. It completely matters. Uh, if, if you want to look at a government agency that functions as a ping pong ball between Republican administrations and Democratic administrations, it's the National Labor Relations Board, which under Trump and previous Republican presidents had made it harder for workers to form a union. And under Biden in particular, uh, there have been some rule changes just recently coming out of the NLRB, uh, which make it now, I think, significantly more possible for workers to organize a union without getting fired, which is commonly what happens, which is one reason why the rate of unionization has gone down so much. That's been illegal since 1935, but there never have been any serious penalties against it since about 1950. So now uh, the, the Biden NLRB has reinstated that. And, you know, that kind of thing makes a real difference between a Trump and a Biden administration. 
Do you think these visits this week by Trump and Biden to Michigan are, are a one-off when it comes to presidential campaign interest in the labor issue or because Michigan and Wisconsin and other manufacturing states happen to be swing states? Do you think we'll see a lot more of this? Well, I don't know if we're going to see any more Biden on the picket line, uh, but I think we're, we're absolutely going to see Biden making a strong pitch for union worker votes and for worker, you know, working class votes anyway. And we can certainly see Trump doing the same, uh, both along the lines that they laid out this week in Michigan. So in that sense, whether or not anyone's on a picket line or not, in that sense, they're not a one-off at all. Harold, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure. That's Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large for the American Prospect. We talked to him today about some of the history of presidents and their engagement with organized labor and what we saw this week from President Biden joining a UAW picket line and former President Trump speaking at a rally at a non-union auto industry plant. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Last week, the South Central Wisconsin chapter of the Audubon Society announced that they are changing their name to Badgerland Bird Alliance. The new name is the result of months of discussion after concerns were raised about the organization's namesake, John James Audubon. Audubon was a 19th century naturalist and artist who published a now world-famous book of bird illustrations, but he also bought and sold enslaved people and advocated for slavery and against abolition. According to the National Audubon Society's website, Audubon did, quote, despicable things even by the standards of his day, end quote. Our next guest joins us for an inside look into the process of selecting a new name in the midst of controversy, what it means when an organization remakes itself to disavow racist legacies and be more inclusive. Matt Reitz is the executive director of Badgerland Bird Alliance. That's the Wisconsin chapter of the National Audubon Society. Matt, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much, Robin. Pleasure to be here. What started this conversation to you in the now Badgerland Bird Alliance? Uh, Well, we have uh, been talking about this issue for almost two years, actually more than two years, when in July of 2020, the National Audubon published an article about the complicated history of John James Audubon in their magazine. And that really kicked off discussions about what the Audubon name means. And it was also uh, part of a national reckoning over historical figures and race in this country. And that's when our board and staff really started thinking about what that name means to us in our work and what that name means to us moving forward in the future. So that's when we began really uh, considering in earnest, sharing information with our members, talking to other chapters around the country, also talking to National Audubon, and really starting to grapple with the, the complicated legacy of John James Audubon. And there was a, a parallel conversation going on, I think, in the birding world about, uh, you know, is this inclusive? Do people who aren't, say, white feel comfortable? Uh, we had the Christian Cooper birding incident in New York City. Um, I've talked to some people who lead uh, birding groups for people of color here in the state, trying to make uh, things more comfortable. Uh, was that part of the story here as well? Absolutely. Uh, we recognized pr- principally in 2020 and then really moving forward that we had a lot more to do to make conservation more inclusive. It's been historically uh, excluded a lot of populations, a lot of community members uh, and marginalized groups. And uh, we had to do some work, not just because of the ethics surrounding it, that that it was the right thing to do, but also because conservation needs all people. It's in order for it to be sustainable and just, uh, we needed to include more people in our work. And that work benefits from more people. Now, when people are talking about renaming things we've seen in many spheres of American life, it gets controversial. The argument sometimes is 
Why not keep the name and the historical connections it has? Maybe have a conversation about what was behind that name, uh, but don't but don't actually change the name. Keep that historical continuity. How did you tackle that uh, potential, at least, objection? Yeah, uh, well, I admit too that when I first heard of uh, Audubon's racist legacy and and some of the other other issues that were going on in his history, which was really not well told in biographies and not well known. Um, I, I thought to myself, well, that's not what Audubon means to me, and I'll certainly tell you that that has changed. And you know, when you when you grapple with when you when you recognize Audubon's environmental legacy, you really have to grapple with his full legacy. So for us, it was we we couldn't just footnote the name, which we determined and learned from our talking to community members and partners and listening to our members that for a lot of groups. Although for some it, it meant birds, it also meant harm for a lot of people is creating barriers for people. So it wasn't enough just to put an asterisk on it and then go about our business. Can you talk a little more about John James Audubon and what you've learned uh, about him since that uh, that starting point? Well, I'm certainly no historian, of course, but there are historians who have have detailed more of Audubon's complicated legacy. Yes, he was known as a as a as a pioneer, as a an outdoorsman, and he created a very well known bird book. But in doing so, he bought and sold people for the benefit of that book. He was known to desecrate native graves and and take skulls. And he sent those skulls to his colleague who was one of the founders of uh um basically race racist theories about different races, uh, scientific racism. Um and he also, I mean, he, he fabricated data. He did all sorts of different kinds of things. But that race, that racist legacy, was a lot. It was a big cross to bear. Talking to Matt Reitz with the executive director of Badgerland Bird Alliance, uh, formerly the local chapter of the Audubon Society, still the local chapter of the National Audubon Society. Talking about what went into that name change. Matt, you mentioned this was a two-year process. Uh, what what went into that? What happened along the way to? decide to uh, get rid of the old name and to come up with a new name, which is never easy. A lot of care, due diligence. Uh, it was a long process, a lot of hard questions we had. To, we'd look very closely at our own selves, both individually as an organization, how we were creating barriers for people. That It was July 2020 that really launched it. And then we, our board tasked a special committee last year in August to really examine what the Audubon name meant for our organization. This is actually following on the heels of talking to Audubon leaders from around the country for many, many months and sharing information with our members and hearing opinions from them. But that special committee did an incredible amount of research and work and prepared a special report for our board of directors that uh, they reviewed carefully and discussed thoroughly at the December 2022 meeting and decided unanimously to drop Audubon from our name and seek a process for developing a new name in an inclusive manner, something that would better represent our work. I've been reading reporting uh, about this on the national level where uh, there were some reactions from, from donors and members saying, if you change the name, I'm out, mm-hmm. basically. Did you encounter that kind of pushback here in Wisconsin? Yeah, and even before we the board made that decision, we, we recognized that we would there would be a number of potential contingencies and consequences to doing this, like loss of brand recognition, for example, or our losing members. And we, we certainly did lose members, members who left our organization because they disagreed with it, many of whose, whom said, you know, that's not what Audubon means to me. And uh, it was disappointing that they didn't hear us out in many cases before we had the chance to really talk about the importance of why we 
needed to do this. It was for us not really a choice. It was necess- necessary. So, uh, yeah, th- but for as many people as left our organization, we've had probably more join in our work. Now, the national group, the Audubon Society, ultimately reached a different answer. They, they've been very frank on their website about uh, John James Audubon's history. They've got a page up about that. They've decided to stick with the name, but they've said chapters like yours, you, don't, you can do what you want. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Uh, it, it's got to feel a little bit like an uneasy relationship. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we, really, we, we have respect that National has their own decision. We're separate 501c3s, although we're affiliated with them. We make our own programming. We do our own governance. We raise our own money. We make our own decisions. And then for us, we knew that it wasn't – that we had to drop the name, that despite our affiliation with National, that for us – retaining the name was going to be problematic for our work and that changing the name makes our work more sustainable, inclusive, equitable, um, better. There might be people listening, uh, maybe people of color or people who don't see themselves represented in the birding world who might say, great, you've changed the name. Now what? Well, this is just a piece of the work that has to be done in conservation to make it more inclusive. Our name change is part of that. It's a signal um, it's the name that greets people at the door. And if it were a, if it's a barrier, that's a problem. So we want to invite people into that tent, but we've also got to create a culture broadly that welcomes people of color and margin, marginalized groups. And we're working on that throughout our organization. And it isn't just an initiative. It's core work. We're doing this from now until forever. A lot of organizations, as I mentioned, may be wrestling with some version of this story, not just in the birding world, but but everywhere in the United States. If somebody's out there listening and saying, yeah, we're going through this at my place of work or organization or whatever, what advice would you give them to try to bring as many people in the conversation and, and build a good process? Well, that you just said it right there. It brings people into the conversation. I think folks really need to to be open to this issue. It is it's it. And get past the instant reaction, because that's honestly what I did. I had an instant reaction and felt a way. But listening to people, learning, and uh, really kind of taking in the issues surrounding all of this, uh, really, is, it's an interesting thing to see. And I've talked to colleagues from around the country that when we f- first talked to folks about this, they said, well, that's not what it means to me. But if you give them time, sometimes they never change that opinion, but sometimes they do, and they become the biggest proponents for a name change. They see why it matters. So I mean, we're here as a resource for, for all chapters in the country who are thinking about this name change, and we've actually helped a lot of them with sharing of materials, and I've visited with board members and other organizations, so we're certainly willing to do that. I know that other organizations that have changed their name are, are willing to do that, too. Now, I know going through a difficult process like this, uh, some people might be concerned, like, is this going to take away the thing that brought me in in the first place, my joy of you know observing birds and protecting birds and nature? Is that still there, that joy for you? Oh, my gosh, yeah. Birds are awesome. It, this is exactly why, one of the reasons why we did this was that we were realizing that not all people were able to experience the joy of birds that I do, for example. And so we've replaced every single word in our former name, Madison Audubon Society, with something that better represents where we work and, more importantly, what we do. And, I mean, for example, a lot of folks said, well, I, Audubon means birds to me. Well, Bird is in our title instead of Audubon mm-hmm. now, and that's better than Audubon and meaning birds. So, and then the end of our our new name is Alliance, and 
I love the part, portion of that that's, that has all, because birds are for all. They need all, and everybody should be able to experience the joys of birds. We're in the joy business. It's serious business, but it's also joyful. Leave us with a brief pitch for anyone who hasn't gotten into that love of birds for whatever reason to maybe uh, keep watching the skies. Oh, my gosh, yeah. You can see birds in your backyard. Uh, there are so many, especially now it's migration time. So put out a feeder. Uh, and just watch. You don't have to be an expert birder. There are so many beautiful, incredible species that are very common here. Just take a look at a cardinal or a blue jay. They're incredible birds. So birding is for, for everyone. Everybody should be able to enjoy birds and, and get out there and have a good time. Matt, thanks a lot for joining us today. You're welcome. I donated, by the way, to WPR <laughs> while we were waiting. So awesome. Thank everybody you. else should as well. <laughs> That's Matt Reitz, Executive Director of the South Central Wisconsin Chapter of The National Group, the Audubon Society, that chapter recently changed its name to Badgerland Bird Alliance. He joined us to give an inside look into why the organization decided to change its name, what went into the process, and how wildlife conservation groups can be more inclusive.